internet and email scams have become just part of our everyday lives. And the cost of these worldwide runs into billions of euros. And so one guy, a guy called James Veach, he has decided to hit back at the scammers. But I probably wouldn't recommend it, okay? Probably just better just to press delete and then stay well clear of them. But there is another scam that we want to talk about uh, this morning. Not an email scam, not people trying to get money from us, but an even more important scam that we need to learn how do we hit back at that. Satan has been scamming people right since back in the Garden of Eden. And it's much, much more than just our money that's at stake. And so this morning, we are going to look at that first scam that Satan pulled. And we're going to try and see why was Eve deceived by it? And why did Adam go along with it? And hopefully we'll learn a bit about how to recognise and resist Satan's schemes in our lives. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 3. And from verse 1 down to verse 6. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Now when we looked uh, a few weeks ago at the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, we noticed that although many people ridicule that as the ignorant myth of a primitive people, and even some who call themselves Christians try to ignore it or excuse it or reinterpret it, we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All of this is God's Word. So that even though there are difficult issues in these chapters, we accepted it. We studied it. We tried to learn from it as the inspired and inerrant Word of God. And I think it's important for us to reaffirm that commitment as we come to this passage here in Genesis chapter 3. Because again, many people just treat this passage as a myth. As a kind of moralistic tale. 
bit like Aesop's Fables. Do you remember Aesop's Fables with the story of all the different animals and stuff like that happening? And it was just, it wasn't true, it was just a, a, a tale to give us a kind of moral, an understanding. But the Bible describes Genesis chapter 3 as the historical record of what happened to the very first couple here on earth. And it's also the reason why this world is in such a mess. So we need to accept it as God's word. Even although there are some things that are difficult to explain here, for sure. I think one of them that jumps off the page to you is this whole idea of a talking serpent. hope that doesn't happen very, very t- many times in your lives. So who is he? How can he speak to this woman? How can he question God's commands? Because this passage simply describes the servant, the serpent, as an animal in God's creation. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And later in the passage, we'll see in a few weeks' time, that this explains why snakes move in the way they do. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 14 of this chapter. So in one sense, it just looks like an animal that the Bible's talking about here. But with the benefit of the rest of Scripture, we can understand the serpent's true identity. For example, if you go back to, go to the, the, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, it says the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So in this passage, when we read serpent, we need to understand that this is Satan, the devil, The prince of evil, the enemy of God and God's people. It's him who's at work here. And we all seem to recognise that he's still out to destroy us. Peter writes that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. But in the Garden of Eden, he appears in disguise. In the body of a serpent. And that slithering of the snakes is supposed to remind us of his kind of slippery and his cunning behaviour. Remember we read a couple of months back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. How Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He is an expert in disguise. He comes along and appears so good and on our side. And yet he's out to destroy us. So we need to be aware of Satan's scams in order that Satan might not outwit us. So this is Satan at work here. But how does he work? What does he do here to cause such a disaster in this garden? Well, Satan's main strategy in the world has always been to twist the truth. Jesus said of him that he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a liar. He always speaks lies. But those lies are difficult to to recognise. 
because he's often too crafty just to come right out and attack God's word. So he does it in a subtle way. He does it in a roundabout way, but still a very dangerous way. And so with Eve here in verse 1, he started with just a subtle questioning of God. Did God really say? Now, of course, it's not wrong to ask a question, is it? We know that's a good thing to do. In fact, we should be encouraged to ask questions because it's a great way to learn about God and his word. Many of you know that in our Youth Bible Study, Connect, we have what we call the big questions that our young people submit. And they can submit them any time. And we will try and deal with those big questions. Because asking those questions is really, really useful way to learn. But the important thing is, how do we ask those questions? There's a, there's a huge difference between a question that comes from an honest inquiry and one that comes from distrust or rebellion. Pure those of us who are parents here this morning know that, don't we? We know the difference between a why and a why. Yeah? You can ask why as, with an, in a, as an ask, a question of submission, just wanting to understand. Or you can ask why as, a, as a, an expression of defiance. And in Jesus' ministry, we can see that happening as well. There were some people who came up to him with genuine questions, asking Jesus for answers because they were desperate to know, to, to learn. Then there were others who came and asked because they were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. So questions can be used properly or improperly. They can be used because we just want to learn about God or they can be used to rebel against God. So we need to guard against this wrong questioning of God. As we read a few weeks ago, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? When we're asking questions, we need to remember that God is God. And we are not. So we need to ask appropriately. But behind Satan's question was a deep defiance against God. Because he went on to suggest that God said, verse 1 again, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. See that? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now this was a complete exaggeration of what God had said. Because what God had actually said, if we jump back to chapter 2, verse 16, this is what he said. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. See the difference? Satan said you must not eat from any tree. God said you are free to eat from any tree apart from just one. So instead of this garden being a place of bountiful provision and extensive freedom with just one tiny little limitation, 
Satan made it out to be a place of unreasonable and unacceptable restriction. From able to eat from any tree but one, to going from not able to eat from any tree. And you know, I think Satan does the same today. This is what Paul says about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And yet Satan so twists the truth that many people's gut reaction is that if you become a Christian, well, you just can't do anything. It's all, it's a list of do not, 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 do not. It's restrictive. It's a prison. It just stops you from living life. And yet Jesus says it's for freedom that you set us free. So we need to guard against the exaggeration of God's commands. When Satan twists it and makes it sound so difficult to follow Jesus. But when Eve answered Satan, and we're going to think about her answer in just a minute, Satan saw an opportunity to be more direct. First of all, he contradicted God's warning of the consequences of sin. He said, you will not surely die. Now there was a half-truth here again. Because Satan knew that when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their life on this planet would not immediately end. That's true, we'll see that in, in, in a few weeks' time. But what he didn't tell Eve was that they would immediately experience spiritual death. Which would one day lead to physical death. And then they would ultimately lead to eternal death. I think we need to guard against this lie as, as well because we might not immediately see the full consequences of our rebellion against God. We might go against God's plan for our life and we might not suffer the immediate consequences of that. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So we need to guard against Satan's lies that minimizes the seriousness of sin. Sin is not trivial. Without Christ, it will always separate us from God, now and forever. Any act of rebellion against God is serious. But Satan wasn't finished yet. Finally, he deceived Eve in distorting the consequences of the disobedience. Verse 5 again. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He made it appear as if God was trying to keep Eve down. As if God was trying to keep Eve from experiencing something that was just great. And that if she ate that tree, then she would know good and evil. She would just be like God. And again, there's a half-truth in this. There's a part-truth in this. Their eyes would be opened by eating from that tree. They would know good and evil. But what Satan never told them 
was that this wouldn't make her like God. But instead this would keep her from God. And the life that God had planned for her. You know, I think Satan hasn't changed his, 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 his strategy very much in all of these years. I think he's still using that lie today. This is an attack on God's character. He says, God is not loving. God is not good. He is not compassionate. He is not merciful. He is not faithful. He is not true. Instead, just God just wants to ruin your fun. He wants to stop you fulfilling your potential. He wants to rob you of love. He wants to mess up your life. He wants to hold you back. And so Satan tells us to do what we want to do. Do what we feel like doing. Do what everybody else is doing. Be all that we can be. But he doesn't tell us what's at the end of all of that. This is what Proverbs says, 14 and 12. There's a way that seems right to man. But in the end, it leads to death. And unfortunately, Eve was taken in by this deception. Now, if you look at verse 2, you'll see that her initial reaction to Satan wasn't, that, wasn't too bad. Verse 2, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, there's a lot to commend Eve here, as she, in some ways, repeats what God had commanded her. Whether she'd heard it directly or through Adam, we don't know. But there are some issues there about what she says. She corrected Satan's exaggeration of the limitation of God's command, but failed just to mention just how privileged they were to be able to eat from all of the trees of the garden but one. Then she repeated the restriction on eating from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but she added in a little restriction on touching it that God did not say. And she rightly repeated the seriousness of disobedience, although she suggested that touching that tree, not just eating it, would incur this penalty of death. So, in some sense, it was an accurate representation of what God had said, but there were some limitations, some changes, some distortion. And it seems that 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 little gap there in what Eve said was enough for Satan to get a foothold in his heart, in her heart. Because when Satan contradicted God's warning and distorted God's character, she again looked at the tree. Look at verse 6. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. Now when you think of it, there's a sense in which the desire behind what Eve was expressing here wasn't wrong. Remember back when we were looking at when God planted the Garden of Eden? How he put trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the garden? Do you remember that? 
And we're seeing how God wants to satisfy our need, our hunger for good food, but also our hunger for beauty, for majesty. So it wasn't wrong for Eve to long for good food or to enjoy and be attracted to beauty and things that were pleasing to the eye. That's not wrong. That's how we were made. Neither was it, in a sense, wrong for Eve to desire wisdom. Do you remember King Solomon, David's son? How he was commended by God because when he was asked what does he want from God, Solomon said, give me wisdom and knowledge. So desire for wisdom is a good thing. Desire for good food is a good thing. Desiring to enjoy the beauty of this world is a good thing. But where Eve went wrong was that she didn't trust in God enough to meet those desires in God's way and in God's timing. In this bountiful place of provision and beauty and communion with God, she believed that she was missing out. And she had to take matters into her own hands. She had to grab what didn't belong to her. She took a shortcut to satisfaction. A shortcut to meet her desires. And I think this is a hugely important illustration for us in our battle over temptation in our lives. I don't believe that overcoming temptation is about condemning our desires or ignoring them or trying to act as if they don't exist. As if we don't have these desires within us. Instead, It is to come to God and to trust that He will satisfy those desires according to His plan and His timing. It's not wrong to have these desires necessarily. We just need to trust that God will meet them in His time. So Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you The desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. See Him as being everything. And then He will meet our needs. He will satisfy our hearts. The way I often picture it is is God has invited us to the most amazing banquet ever. But instead of trusting that what God has planned for us is worth waiting for. We make ourselves sick stuffing our faces with cheap sweets. Sure, there's a, there's a short-term sugar rush. But that satisfaction doesn't last. And we miss out on the great things that God has planned for us. So it's not wrong for us the fact that we want or we desire, or we long for more. It's about how we're going to see that being satisfied. Are we going to grab what we can? Go our own way? Steal what doesn't belong to us? Or are we going to trust God to meet all of our needs?
and fulfill all of our desire? Are we going to trust that God is enough for what he has? Are we going to trust that Jesus was telling the truth when he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full? Do we believe that? If we did, we wouldn't be going anywhere else to satisfy our desire. But Eve was deceived. She believed that she knew best and so she took some and she ate it. She decided that dissatisfying her, her desires was more important than obeying God. She put meeting her needs, her longings, her, her ambition above that of God's word. And so she brought that condemnation on herself. And people are doing the same today. In doing what they want. What feels good. What works for them. Rather than doing God's work. So the Apostle John writes in his letter, everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now just in case you thought we're just being focused on the woman, that wasn't what all that she did. Because in verse 6 it says, she also gave some to her husband who is with her. And all it says in, three, in four little words, and he ate it. For some reason, Adam was silent through this whole procedure. He was there, but he was silent as his wife was being deceived by Satan. Adam failed in his leadership role in his family. He failed to challenge the lies of Satan. He failed to stand and help his wife stand against them. Adam didn't speak God's truth. Instead he just stood silently as all of this was happening. And then he just unquestionably, unquestioningly followed what his wife did. She gave him that fruit and he ate it. So a little while later God said to him, you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you. You must not eat of it. Adam listened to his wife instead of listening to God. When you think of it, I think that's just plain idolatry. When we put someone or something above God and his place in our life. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Adam was not the one deceived. Eve, she was deceived. But Adam was not. Instead, he willfully rejected God's authority and rule. And he ate that fruit in direct rebellion against God's word. And as a result, the Bible sees that it's Adam who brought the awful consequence of sin into this world. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 5 says this, Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And death 
through sin. And in this way, death came to all men. Because all sinned. Now sometimes our reaction to reading all of this is like, come on Adam, look what you've done. And yet we can't stand in judgment on Adam. Because through our own personal sin, it's as if we've agreed with his decision, haven't we? Because we too have gone against God's word. And we too have decided to do what we want rather than what God has said. We've shown that we're no better than Adam for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the consequences of this are devastating in this world. We're going to see that in the next few weeks as we go down through this passage. But of course we're here this morning Because the Garden of Eden isn't the end of the story. It doesn't stop there. Man's relationship with God was destroyed by sin, but God's love for man was not. And in his love, God sent Jesus to overcome the power of sin. So Jesus came and he faced all of Satan's scams. But each time he resisted, through a perfect commitment to God's word. In the wilderness, after 40 days of fasting, Jesus rejected the temptation to satisfy his hunger. He refused to put God's word to the test by throwing himself off that temple. He refused to take a shortcut to satisfaction and to glory by bowing down to Satan. And so instead of doing what came easily, he obeyed his father's will even when it took him to the cross. Where he laid down his life in payment for our sins. So that through simple faith, we can be declared righteous in God's sight. So Romans chapter 5 goes on to say, through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, many will be made righteous. Adam brought sin into this world and it destroyed this world. Jesus came and paid for our sin, laying down his life for us and brought salvation. But that's not all. Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has given us, those of us who have trusted in him, the resources that we need to overcome so that we don't need to continue to succumb to Satan's lies. So Paul says, put on the full armour of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on that armour, so we can take a stand, and we won't need to follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, as they are deceived or rebelled against God. And so instead we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus, our Saviour who resisted again and again the schemes of Satan. Now, we don't have time to go through this in detail, but just let me run through it real quick. The belt of truth. That's the first piece of armour, so that we can recognise and reject Satan's lies. Because we're enveloped in God's truth. That's what Caroline was telling us about this morning. The importance of getting God's word in our hearts. 
The breastplate of righteousness. So we can trust in the righteousness that Jesus has given us. Not in our own self-righteousness, but in His gift of righteousness. Given through us through the cross. Feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So we can stand in this wonderful gospel and we can go forth and tell other people about it. This gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We can hide behind that shield of faith. So we can stand behind our trust in God, even when those fiery darts of doubt are fired at us. We can put on the helmet of salvation to remind us that we belong to Christ. We can take up the sword of the Spirit using God's word to attack Satan's lies. And last of all, we can pray with all kinds of prayers. Expressing our complete dependence on God and our submission to Him. So this morning, folks, even though we just, just now, we are still living in this world that's hurting as a result of Adam and Eve and all that they did in that garden. We don't need to be people who follow in their footsteps. We can depend on the one who defeated sin and Satan. And who wants to bring us into his victory. One last verse, just to finish. James chapter 4 says this. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. And I pray that each one of us will learn how to do this. So in our lives today, we will be able to resist Satan's schemes.